Hey friends, uh, it's kind of a rainy Saturday afternoon, so uh, uh, maybe we'll just have a cup of, cup of tea and talk a little bit about this passage. Uh, we're in Acts 5, 12 to 42, and uh, I thought we might begin just by asking this question. Um, what do you do when God says yes, but life says no? What do you do when you really think God has called you to do something, but life keeps saying no, keeps resisting you? You know, the apostles lived in this tension between life's no and God's yes. Uh, the first six chapters in the book of Acts record that again and again. It's really the, uh, the story of the startup church in Jerusalem. And again and again, God tells the apostles to preach the gospel. They do, and they encounter resistance after resistance um, in uh, actually being imprisoned several times. Uh, where we pick up the story today is the apostles uh, were just a couple months into the life of the church, and they're still around the temple. They still feel a part of Israel, of, of Judaism. They're, they still feel part of that. And the apostles are performing signs and wonders. Uh, people are taking note. The gospel is being preached. The church is growing. Uh, we read in verse 14, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women. But the authorities arrest them. They move quickly, trying to put down this rapidly growing uh, movement. Verse 17, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Well, the Sadducees are a party within Judaism who controlled the governing council, and they had worked out this power-sharing agreement with the Romans, so they were very uh, kind of enmeshed with uh, the Roman powers. Uh, it was a very delicate balance, and if things got out of control with the Jews, uh, the Romans would take the Sadducees out of power. So Jesus and his apostles were very destabilizing, and it threatened these leaders. So they put the apostles in prison. Now, you know, we read that today, and uh, maybe we read through it quickly because we know they get out of prison. Maybe we think of it kind of like a traffic ticket or a citation for a parking violation. Um, Roman prisons were very, very different. Um, I couldn't find uh, the exact prison where uh, the apostles would have been put. I did find out some interesting things about first century Roman prisons. Uh, Roman law actually did not use prison as a form of punishment it was normally for those waiting trial and particularly for those waiting to be executed. So when you went to prison uh, in first century Rome, in Roman Empire, it was normally to die. Uh, sometimes you would get out and be sent to a forced labor concentration camp. Uh, the prisons were typically dark with no natural light, which meant at, at night it was pitch black. Uh, prisoners relied on friends and family to bring any kind of food or water. There, none of that was supplied. Um, prisoners were typically bound in chains, either on their arms or their wrists or their neck. Uh, they were often chained to another prisoner, which made it very difficult to sleep. The chains were very heavy. The cells were very small and very crowded. 
Uh, the prisoners went to the bathroom where they were chained. Uh, many of them died. Uh, when they did, they just stacked the bodies up uh, in the corner of the cell. Uh, one Roman prison that we can visit today is called the Mamertine Prison in Rome. I've actually been there. Um, it's a dark room, 12 feet underground, 6 foot ceiling, about 30 feet long. Uh, the Roman historian Sallust said, Its appearance is disgusting and vile by reason of the filth, the darkness, and the stench. And he goes on to describe the prison as hideous and terrifying. So this is where the apostles are. Uh, for, for them and their families, it, it may have felt like a, a death sentence. Um, a Roman prison was a mighty no to God's yes. When Dante passed through the gates of hell in his vision, he looked up and he saw a sign that read, Abandon hope, all you who enter here. And a similar sign could have hung above Roman prisons. They were not the idea of rehabilitation debilitating a prisoner had not entered the minds yet. Uh, they were there to, to pretty much break you down and tear you away from hope. You know, I think any of us can feel this way. You're, you're trying to respond to God, yes. You're trying to do as well, but you keep facing resistance. You keep facing problems. You keep feeling imprisoned, unable to do the very thing that God called you to do. You might not know what to do next. Um, you might feel confused, lost, um, hopeless, discouraged. But one of the great messages of the Bible is um, that God is a God of exodus, of deliverance, of rescue, that he doesn't leave us trapped or stuck, that his purposes do carry on, and he helps us find a way through. It might not always be the way that we think it should be, but he does help us find the way through. Now, this is a long passage, and I encourage you to read and study all of it. Um, uh, there's some fascinating little scenes in here with Gamaliel, um, but for the purposes of time, I just wanted to linger in verses 19 to 21 and look at this little scene where uh, God sends an angel to get them out of prison. But during the night, the angel of the Lord, no, an angel of the Lord, there is an angel of the Lord in the Old Testament that is uh, usually uh, seen as, as Christ, but this is an angel of the Lord, opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people the words of this life. Now, the Greek word for uh, angel, angelos, means, it just means messenger. And usually in the Bible, uh, it refers to a supernatural messenger, uh, an angel, but it often, often just refers to a human messenger. So the Greek reads, uh, uh, like when describing John the Baptist, he's called an angelos of the Lord or uh, an angel of the Lord. But there it just means a human messenger. And so literally the text just says, a messenger of the Lord opened the prison doors. So remember, uh, it's, it's pitch black. Um, someone comes in the middle of the night. Uh, they don't probably even see him. They know he's of the Lord, and uh, he releases them and reminds them of what they said yes to, reminds them of their calling. Now, I think, again, one of the reasons we're, we're to think about this story is that 
when we find ourselves in prison, when we find ourselves trapped, when we find ourselves facing hopeless circumstances, God supernaturally will show us a way through, um, often in response to prayer. Do you remember back in chapter 4, uh, they were all in a hard place again, and they pray, uh, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So really what we're seeing in chapter 5 is an answer to that prayer. God is, is coming in the form of an angel to, uh, to, to free them. So one thing I'd encourage you to do if you feel kind of at a dead end or stuck and don't know what to do, just get some people together and pray. Pray for God's supernatural deliverance. Pray that he will free you so that you can serve him. Now, you know, let's not just rush past the detail of the, the angel. Angels are very busy doing God's work across the pages of Scripture. Uh, they, they are often rescuing God's people and helping them do his work. Uh, an angel helps Moses free the people from Egypt. An angel comes to Mary and tells her that her son will free the people from their sins. And, and you might think, oh, I know, that's just kind of cute little Bible stuff. You know, if we're biblical people, this is part of the package. Um, the Bible says that there are angelic beings who minister to us. Hebrews 1.14 says that angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. And I don't know why, I just felt like uh, maybe dwelling on this a little bit longer. I can think of two reasons why you may not and I may not be aware of angelic ministry in our life. Um, the first is I think we always expect angels to look like a winged creature from a Renaissance painting. Uh, but the Bible doesn't actually say a lot about what most angels look like. Uh, and maybe the reason why there's kind of this ambiguity between um, the human messenger and the supernatural messenger is maybe a lot of times angels come to us in the form of a human messenger. Uh, just in, in other words, you, you don't know that they are a supernatural being. Um, here's an example. In Genesis 18, uh, there's this really interesting story where three men or three guests appear to Abraham while he and Sarah are by their tent and they tell him this wonderful story that God is going to bless Sarah with a child. But when you look at the story closely, it's very interesting because sometimes uh, it's, it says the Lord appeared to Abraham. These men appeared to Abraham. Sometimes he talks to the men. Sometimes he talks to the Lord. And what you realize by the end of the story is that these are not humans. These are messengers from God. They're, they're angelic beings. The lines kind of blur. Um, so sometimes God sends messengers to help us uh, who look like humans but are actually spiritual beings. And I bet if you look at your life, uh, you might think of a time or two when that may have happened. I think another reason why we uh, are not very sensitive to angelic ministry is because uh, angels appear to us in our dreams, and most of us don't pay much attention to our dreams. Uh, for example, Joseph appears three times to Mary in a dream. So you might just start to pay attention when a, 
when something special happens in your dream life, it might be an angel. But, you know, we don't always have to see angels to receive ministry from them. Thomas Aquinas, uh, the great medieval theologian, he thought angels came to us to inspire our ideas uh, or his ideas. Billy Graham would go on and write a, a, a whole book on this in the 70s. I think it was called uh, God's Secret Agents or something like that. He wrote an essay for Guidepost magazine in 1976, and I just wanted to quote from it a little a bit because I thought it was a good introduction. Uh, Billy Graham, who was a, a great uh, evangelist in the middle of the 20th century, he, he said, Some time ago, when I decided to preach a sermon on angels, I found practically nothing in my library. Upon investigation, I soon discovered that little had been written on the subject in this century. This seemed a strange and ominous omission. Bookstores and libraries have shelves of books on demons, the occult, and the devil. Why was the devil getting more attention than angels? Angels have a much more important place in the Bible than the devil. Therefore, I undertook a biblical study of the subject of angels. Not only has it been one of the most fascinating studies of my life, but I believe the subject is more relevant today than ever. The Bible says, Psalm 91.11, For he will give his angels charge to you to guard you in all your ways. Are there supernatural beings today who are able to influence our affairs? Dr. S.W. Mitchell, a celebrated Philadelphia neurologist, had gone to bed after an exceptionally tiring day. Suddenly he was awakened by someone knocking on his door. Opening it, he found a little girl poorly dressed and deeply upset. She told him her mother was very sick and asked him if he would please come with her. It was a bitterly cold, snowy night, but though he was bone-tired, Dr. Mitchell dressed and followed the girl. As Reader's Digest reports the story, he found the mother desperately ill with pneumonia. After arranging for medical care, he complimented the sick woman on the intelligence and persistence of her little daughter. The woman looked at him strangely and then said, My daughter died a month ago. She added, Her shoes and coat are in the clothes closet there. Dr. Mitchell, amazed and perplexed, went to the closet and opened the door. There hung the very coat worn by the little girl who'd brought him to tend to her mother. It was warm and dry and could not possibly have been out in the wintry night. Could the doctor have been called in an hour of desperate need by an angel who appeared as this woman's young daughter? Was this the work of God's angels on behalf of the sick woman? During my ministry, I've heard or read literally thousands of similar stories. <laughs> the Bible testifies that God has provided assistance for us in our spiritual conflicts. We're not alone in this world. The Bible teaches us that God's Holy Spirit has been given to empower us and guide us. In addition, the Bible also teaches that God has countless angels at his command. Furthermore, God has commissioned these angels to aid his children in their struggles against Satan. I'm convinced that these heavenly beings exist and that they provide unseat aid in our benefit. I do not believe in angels because I've ever seen one. I haven't. I believe in angels because the Bible says there are angels, and I believe the Bible to be the true word of God. Well, why, why dwell on this? Well, I'm not saying that every time we get into trouble, an angel swoops down and makes everything better. 
But, you know, I, I think you kind of either believe the Bible or you don't. And if we believe in resurrection, we believe in a spiritual world, and the angels are a, a very real part of that. And I really think this, this is an encouragement to cry out to God for supernatural help uh, to, to help us break through the places in our life where we are stuck. And who knows? He might just send an angel. Well, the angel reminds them of what he, they said yes to. He says, go speak to the people all the words of this life. And that just really struck me this week. that He doesn't free them from, from prison so they can just go breathe fresh air or just be back with their families, as good as that is. Uh, this is a missional story. He frees them so that they can get on with their mission. He he frees them for this bigger purpose of of their life. Um, and I, I wonder if this isn't one of the reasons why we can stay stuck in um, fear or hopelessness, anxiety, uh, despair, uh, because I think sometimes we forget that our life is not about ourselves. Our life is about serving God and others. And if you lose sight of that and it becomes all about me, uh, I do think we're more prone to uh, to get stuck and, and, and get trapped. Um, I, I listened to two books on um, viruses during the pandemic. I think that's enough. Um, the, the second one was John Barry's book on the 1918 influenza. It was very good. But he ends it in a odd way um of course at the end of the book everybody all the scientists are are working so hard to find a vaccine as they are today and he ends with the story of a brilliant scientist named uh, dr paul lewis at princeton and he helped discover a part of the uh the original flu virus but according to barry uh, dr lewis somewhere along the way something happened and he became obsessed with his own legacy, with uh, making a name for himself, with winning a Nobel Prize, doing something great, as opposed to the earlier years when it kind of been about doing science to serve others. And uh, in the book, Barry spends a lot of time telling this man's story and how over five years he kept running into dead end after dead end. And then Ultimately, his research just stopped panning out, and he kind of quit for a while, became depressed, um, and just totally lost his way. Uh, the first part of those years, he worked harder and harder and harder and harder and threw everything he had at it, and it just never worked. And then there's an odd little twist to the story. He winds up in Brazil, kind of a last effort to kind of be famous and find a cure to, um, it wasn't the Spanish flu, but it was another uh, another virus that was going on down there. And uh, uh, he, he dies in kind of a tragic way that uh, Barry suggested might be suicide. And I just saw that it's such a, a sad story. He, he ended his wife estranged from his wife and family, um, from his colleagues. He became so obsessed of kind of breaking through that wall that um, it kind of destroyed himself. Um, and, and I really think this is kind of a, a picture of, uh, how not to do it. Um, when we run into something, when God is, we think God's telling us to do something, but life says no. When it becomes more about my ego, more about my reputation, more about my legacy, 
and I just rely on my own intellect and power to kind of muscle through it, that doesn't end well. Um, you don't see that at all in this story here. Um, it's clearly they they wanted to be set free so they could do God's will. So you might think about that in the places in your life where you're a little stuck. Is um, is, is this become about you or uh, about about serving God. Now, another thing that kind of popped out to me as I was meditating on this part of the story, one, one of the things that keep us from doing God's will in the world is, is uh, the fear of change. Um, really, that's what's happening with the religious authorities, right? Um, God has brought something new. He's brought new wine. He's brought Jesus, and they can't see it, and they're so threatened that they they get angry and, and shut it down, or try to. Um, about, I think it was 1998, there was a, a best-selling business book a friend reminded me of this week called uh, Who Moved the Cheese by uh, Dr. Spencer Johnson. And it's a, it's a cute little business story about uh, change, really. Two mice and two little people are in a maze looking for cheese. One day the cheese is moved. Uh, the two mice expected this to happen, and so they've been preparing, and so they're ready to find another way through the maze to find new cheese. But the two little people uh, just get mad. They just get angry, and they just camp out there, and they wait for the cheese to come back. Well, of course, the cheese never comes back, and so they, uh, they get hungry. Then the mice ride on the wall of the maze for anyone who might follow them in search of the cheese. Change happens. They keep moving the cheese. Anticipate change, get ready for the cheese to move. Monitor change, smell the cheese often so you know when it's getting old. Adapt to change quickly. The quicker you let go of the cheese, the sooner you can enjoy new cheese. Change, move with the cheese. Enjoy change, savor the adventure and enjoy the taste of new cheese. Be ready to change quickly and enjoy it again. They keep moving the cheese. <laughs> I thought that was a great way to kind of get the point of the book in there. But, you know, sometimes it's, it's not really life that's saying no to us. It's, um, it's our fear of change. I really think that's what's happening with the religious leaders here. Uh, they can't see that the Jesus moved. The Messiah has come now. They don't need to keep enforcing um, the old ways. And really, when the angel comes and says to the apostles, you go out and tell this uh this life about this life i think what he's saying is hey go tell them because remember they're all jewish people out at the temple he says go tell them that jesus moved <laughs> um jesus is uh here now uh the new wine is here the, the old wine is done um the, really the apostles are free because uh they're they're following the new wine uh the leaders are the ones who are really in the prison in this story because they cannot and will not embrace the change that has come in Jesus. So something you might think about today is, is just if you feel like um, if you feel like you're trying to do what God wants you to do, but you're kind of stuck. Um, has God moved the cheese? Um, is are you trying to do something um, that maybe he's done doing? Um, are you, are you just kind of hunkered down waiting for the cheese to come back? Um, or are you more like the apostles, drinking the new wine, embracing the new life, and going on this adventure of, of following? Well, we're out of time. Um, the apostles preach again. 
they're arrested again. A wise rabbi tells his other friends and rabbis, let's step back, step back and watch. If God's not in this, it will fail. And if he is, we don't want to be on the wrong side of it. That little portion is well worth uh, some extended study. They're flogged. They preach again, filled with joy, um, because life said no, but God said yes. Um, I'll end with this. A friend, Deb Scaperoth, sent me a poem this week that just really resonated with me, and I really thought it related to this theme of when, when you run into a dead end and you don't know what to do, and it feels like you're in prison, that sometimes that's actually the place where God is uh, bringing change, bringing a new way, and showing you where the cheese moved. It's a sh very short poem by Wendell Berry called The Real Work. It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. And that when we no longer know which way to go, we have come to our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. <laughs>